gospel lesson this morning is found in John 8. I'm going to read verse 12 and then skip to verse 30 and through the end. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of, is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if, only, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. I don't believe you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this morning you would not hide your face from us, but that you would reveal yourself to us. Show yourself to be a God of mercy and grace in Jesus, 
and open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first book of the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, we're met very early on by an unlikely and confusing figure, and his name is Strider. If you've read the book, you'd know that the people of Middle-earth called him a ranger. And these rangers were strange, they were confusing, and they were often intimidating because people didn't understand them. They were men, but they weren't really men. They didn't belong to any kingdom. They didn't have a home. They had no real place to lay their head. They wandered in the wilderness. They lived off fruit and berries and nuts, and they lived off, of the, off the wilderness. They wore dirty clothes, and they rarely bathed. And so you can imagine it would be quite strange for this strider, this ranger whose clothes are dirty and who rarely bathes, it would be strange for him to come to a meeting of all the leaders of the people of Middle Earth. But that's exactly what he does. He takes a seat at the Council of Elrond, and at this council, all the leaders of Middle Earth gather to discuss what to do about a wicked army that's being gathered to wage war against them. And in the middle of of the council, a man named Boromir stands up, Now, Boromir is a proven warrior. Everyone knows who this guy is. Nobody's confused by him. He doesn't smell bad, and he doesn't live off the wilderness. He's killed lots of other warriors, lots of enemies of his kingdom. And his father actually sits as the steward of Gondor. Gondor is one of the kingdoms of men. And he looks over at Strider and says, and who are you? What would a ranger know of this matter? And immediately, the great elf lord, Lord Elrond, stands up in the middle of the council and he says, this is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Gondor. And the movie adds, and you owe him your allegiance. You can taste the tension in the air when you read this and when you watch it in the movie. Elrond makes this massive claim about this unlikely figure. It's a claim that changes everything and the tension is palpable and you're waiting to see, does Boromir take a knee and bow before his king? Jesus makes a claim here in John 8 that is palpable. It creates tension in you and in me and in chapter seven, it actually begins to divide people. There's a division among the people. Some believe he's the Christ and some believe he's not. He claims in verse 12, he says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is picking up on Isaiah 49 here. Isaiah says, well, the Lord says through Isaiah that, It's too light a thing for his servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, just to save the Israelites. It's too small a thing just for him to save Israel. And so God is going to make him a light to the nations that his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is calling himself that light of the nations that Isaiah speaks about. Jesus claims in John 8 to be the sole provider of life. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All of us are seeking life. 
All of us are running after and pursuing life and Jesus claims to be the end of that pursuit. He claims to be the only provider, the sole provider of true life that we're all seeking. And this changes everything because as the sole provider of life, as the sole source of true life, Jesus must confront all of our attempts to find life outside of him. And that's what he's doing here in this passage, what he's been doing in chapter seven and chapter eight. He's confronting us. He's shining a light into our darkness. And in chapter eight, he's not shining a light into the darkness of the world. He's not, like, he's not revealing all of the badness outside of our walls. He's not, revealing, uh, he's, he's not shining his light into the darkness of our culture. He's not shining a light into the darkness of politics. He's not shining a light into the darkness of war. He's shining a light into the darkness of the church. These are the religious elite of their day. They knew the Bible. They were well-educated. They went to church on a regular basis. And verse 30 says, many believed in him. These Jewish elite, many believed in his name. And Jesus confronts them. He shines a light into the darkness of all of us, into the darkness of the church. And so what goes wrong in the church? When Jesus confronts us, when he shines a light on the church, what does he expose? Well, we see first, he exposes that we overestimate our confidence. Look, look with me at where these early believers were placing their confidence. Jesus says to them in verse 31, he speaks to these Jews who had believed him. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But they answer him, we are offspring of Abraham. We are his descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, the first thing that these believers are placing their confidences in is in their heritage, in their physical ethnic descent from Abraham, their father. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to establish a name for Abraham and to bless the world. And he was gonna make Abraham a great nation. And they're claiming to live in that lineage. They've never been enslaved is what they say. They need no freedom because they already possess it. And Jesus exposes the weakness of this foundation for their confidence by claiming that if they really were Abraham's children, they'd be doing the works Abraham did. Look at verse 39 and 40. They say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But they're not doing those works. They're not living in line with that lineage. They're not following after their father, Abraham. And so Jesus exposes the weakness of that foundation, the weakness of that confidence. They've overestimated themselves, overestimated their confidence. They also place their confidence in the law. Just before this, in verses 12 through 30, there's this back and forth dialogue between, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they actually end up calling Jesus a liar at, at one point. Verse 12 and 13, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
And what they have this back and forth about is that the law requires that if anybody makes a claim for or against themselves or someone else, there must be two witnesses. And Jesus is only bearing witness about himself. So they're relying, they're placing their confidence and their judgment of Jesus on their law. And Jesus squashes that too. Jesus later says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, one, and the father who sent me bears witness about me also. So he's saying, there's two of us who bear witness about me, myself and the father, and so I've beaten your law, but also he's God, he's the giver of that law. How can that law then judge the giver of that law? It's impossible. So their confidence is way overestimated. When Jesus began to expose these weaknesses in their confidence, they actually began to double down, right? They began to attack Jesus. They dug in and began to fight. They called Jesus in verse 13 a liar. Your testimony is not true. They actually questioned his paternity. In verse 41, they say, sounds like a really confusing interjection. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. That's, they're not making a judgment on themselves. They're actually taking a jab at Jesus. They're well aware that Mary conceived Jesus before she was married to Joseph. And so they're taking a jab at Jesus, not acknowledging the miraculous birth of him, but claiming that his mother lived in sexual immorality. They also call him a Samaritan and demon-possessed in verse 48. They're overestimating themselves, overestimating their confidence in their heritage and in their law. And anytime you begin to attack, you can bet that you're probably on the wrong side of an argument. What that reveals when you begin to attack someone is that your confidence is actually quite weak because if your confidence is secure and it's strong, then there's no need to attack. You have no need to fight because you know what's true. These folks are living in an unsecure, insecure confidence. They've overestimated themselves. I was having a theological argument in college, uh, which is a great time to have theological arguments, isn't it? Right, you think very highly of yourself in college. So we're talking, uh, my freshman year, we're sitting on a front porch with some friends and we're talking about predestination, right? That's, that's a great conversation to have freshman year of college when you think you're smart. And one of my friends was in support of predestination. The other was in, utterly indifferent. One was playing devil's advocate for both and I was the one fighting against it. Now I've seen the light, so don't judge me now. But we're having this theological argument and my main, my, my main claim is this. There's no way I can believe in the God of the Bible that the God of the Bible chose some people over others. That's my basic claim. There's no way I can believe that the God of the Bible chooses some over others. Yo, that's a pretty weak argument. I'm not resting my argument. I'm not resting my confidence on the Bible. I'm not like flipping through the Bible, looking at, at passages and fighting I'm just like, I'm making an emotive argument. I can't believe. And so my friends began to pick away at that argument because I sounded really confident. Like 
my voice was raised and I, my chest was out. You know, I, I looked confident, I sounded confident, but I had overestimated myself. I had overestimated my confidence. What are the things that you place your confidence in that actually end up proving very weak, that fall apart when judged according to the scrutiny of God's perfection and goodness? Are you placing your confidence in your kids that they're not as rambunctious as mine, which is true? Are you placing your confidence in your vocation that you're working harder than everybody else, making more money than everybody else? Are you placing your confidence in your church membership that your church is the sole, uh, the, the, the sole f- uh, faithful church in Jacksonville? We're not, by the way. There's a lot of them. Are you placing your confidence in your theological aptitude and your knowledge of the Westminster Confession? Your knowledge of the doctrine of justification? Your capacity to read church history and church theology? What are those things that you're placing your confidence in? That when Jesus looks at you and he shines a light, you begin to be exposed and you've overestimated your confidence. So we do overestimate ourselves. Second thing that we see here is that we, under, we, we wildly underestimate our problem. These early believers claim to have never been enslaved to anyone, even though, even though they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Even though that their king, King Herod, had been set up by the Roman Empire as a puppet king. Even though many of their priests were set up by the Roman Empire to keep the peace. They still claim, no, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Look, we're children of Abraham. We're his offspring. And Jesus' response is revealing. Look at how he responds to them. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is telling these early believers that the least of their problems is slavery to the Roman Empire. The least of their problems is slavery to any man. The least, uh, their their problem isn't a problem of will. It's not a problem of desire. Because frankly, if anybody could will themselves into favor with God, it was probably these guys. Like they worked really hard. They had an intense desire to be, uh, to be the, the one righteous community. The problem wasn't a problem of work. They worked harder at being righteous than anyone else. You know, their problem is much more profound. Our problem is much more profound. Our problem is that we are enslaved to an even more wicked monster than Caesar. They're enslaved to sin. The very thing that they trust to save them became the thing that enslaved them. They trusted their descent to Abraham, of, from Abraham as the thing that would save them, the thing that made them right with God. They claimed obedience to the law as the thing that made them righteous before God. But it's those two things that are actually keeping them from seeing the Messiah, 
It's keeping them from seeing Emmanuel, God with us, right, standing right there in front of them. The thing that they had been trusting in to save them became their snare. And their bondage to sin is actually revealed primarily in the fact that God's word finds no home in their lives. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And he'll say later that, I know you are offspring of Abraham. He acknowledges, yeah, sure, you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. God's word did not find a home in these early believers. They didn't find a home in God's word. So Jesus goes as far to say to them that they're children of Abraham. In fact, they can't even hear the words of God. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And the words bear to are actually, and the translators added that. If you were to look at it, it actually just says, because you cannot hear my word. You're unable. These early believers are unable to hear God's word because something miraculous hadn't happened yet inside them. The problem's not outside. The problem's inside. Calls them children of the devil. He says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is a crazy indictment against these early believers. And this is really tough for us to come to grips with because many of these folks were actually really great Bible people. They memorized like whole sections of their scriptures. They were really faithful to obey the law. But it's that fidelity to obeying the law that actually kept them from seeing the Messiah right in front of them. When God speaks to them in his son, there's no movement in their souls. There's no capacity for them to hear Jesus because they hadn't yet been moved. I was driving my truck the other day and it's been having a little rough time <laughs> for a lot of years. Uh, but it's mostly run great, mostly. But it's been running a, a little rough lately. It has, uh, it's been idling low. If, any, if you don't know what that means, it just means that every once in a while if I stop really abruptly, it's, it stalls. It stops working. And I have to crank it back up. Most of the time, I'm actually pretty good at that. Pretty good when it stops, I recognize it, crank it back up, and I'm good. One day I was driving to the office and the light turned yellow and I was thinking, let's speed up and get through it. The car in front of me was thinking something different. <laughs> they, they, they decided I'm gonna, we're gonna slam on our brakes. And so I said, oh no, I should probably slam on my brakes too. So I did that and the back tires every once in a while will squeal if that happens. It's not a big deal, it's, you know, it's nothing to worry about. But so the back tires squealed a little and, and I, I stopped, I didn't hit them, I promise, all was well. Light turns green, I take my foot off the brake and I hit the gas, nothing happens. Unbeknownst to me, the truck had stalled. Now you might be thinking to yourself, John, your truck's a little loud, so you probably would recognize that, you would think so. But because of the, the brakes, I didn't recognize it, the, the squeal of the tires, I didn't see it. But I recognized there was a problem when there was no movement. Y'all, you know there's a problem with your car when it doesn't move. 
You hit the gas and nothing happens. Anytime there's a lack of movement in our souls, when we hear God's word preached or taught or read or prayed through, if there's a lack of movement, you may have a problem. There may be a problem in your life. You may be allowing yourself to be enslaved to something. If there's no movement, none at all, and, and especially if you begin to double down. If you begin to fight and you begin to double down, you can, you can bet there's a, there's a problem. You're probably beginning to let yourself be enslaved by something. You're not recognizing that your problem is infinitely deeper than you could ever imagine. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's anxiety or depression. You're letting yourself be ensnared by that. And anytime someone offers you freedom, you scoff at them. That can't happen. Maybe it's, we're Presbyterians, we do this really well with theology. You know, we talk about the doctrine of justification a lot. You know, justification by grace through faith, right? We forget that it's through faith in Jesus. Like, that's kind of the big deal, y'all. Like Jesus is the deal. And that's what, these Jew, that's what these early Christians, these early believers are totally missing. Their deepest problem, the only solution is Jesus. He's the one standing right in front of them. God made flesh. And we talk about justification by grace through faith, great in Jesus. If you miss that, you miss the whole thing. And that's what Jesus is confronting in these early believers. It's that they're allowing themselves to be enslaved. It's that they haven't quite yet come to be moved by the gospel. And their problem is infinitely deeper than they could have ever imagined. You know, this, is, this can be hard to swallow. When we're confronted by these things, it's, it can be hard for us to acknowledge that we place our confidence in all the wrong places. It can be really hard for us to swallow the fact that our problem is infinitely deeper than anything I can do about it. So what would, what would keep us from retreating? Because that would be one of the major temptations, wouldn't it? it? Our temptation would either be to double down and say, no, I don't have a problem, or it would be to retreat back into our darkness. Just to maybe like pull an ostrich and throw our head in the ground. I don't have a problem, I, I promise. My confidence isn't weak. The only answer is found in verses 28 and 58. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, that I am. Jesus actually says, when, you lift, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. He also says at the end in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is, Jesus is identifying himself with the Old Testament God. He's saying, just like God said to Moses when he asked, who do I tell them sends me? God says, tell them I am sends you. Jesus is saying, when you lift up the son of man, you'll know that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, entered into the darkness and was lifted up on a cross. He, the founder of creation, who existed long before our father Abraham, he entered into his creation in order to save his creation. When Jesus confronts us, he always confronts us out of love, never seeking to shame us, never seeking to create despair, but he confronts us in order to offer us life and freedom. He tells us that we far overestimate our confidence if our confidence is not in him. And our problem is far deeper than we could ever imagine. He is your only source of life. He is your confidence and he's the only solution to your deepest problems. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's often uncomfortable for us to be confronted by you. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable and confusing often and so we ask for your grace. Your grace to trust you. Ask Lord that you would move in us, that we would be moved by your gospel. Do a work in us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.